Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week, our guest is David Broder, who is the Europe editor for Jacobin and the author of First They Took Rome, How the Populist Right Conquered Italy. And his next book comes out early next year and will be Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. Thanks for joining us, David. Well, thanks for inviting me. Busy couple of weeks at all? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, um, I actually live in Berlin, but I've been back in Rome for, well, for the two weeks before the election and then uh, the last week as well. I'm still in Italy. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's a moment when like a lot of people are writing about Italy and uh, I hope someone like myself who has some uh, his historical insight can uh, make a particular contribution. So yeah, like I've been doing a lot of uh, articles and maybe even some more mainstream outlets as well as the ones I usually write for. I did see one headline in the Australian media, uh, the election of Giorgio uh, represented the the first right-wing government in Italy since World War II, which I'm not quite <laughs> sure was quite right. Uh, maybe could you just uh, explain to our listeners what happened in Italy? Well, they're certainly wrong to say it's the first right-wing government. It's so the election on Sunday, the 25th of September, saw the victory for the right-wing coalition, which includes Giorgio Meloni's party Fratelli d'Italia, which is a post-fascist party with roots in historical uh, neo-fascism. Uh, they got 26% of the vote. Then it's two allies, uh, which each did much worse. So Matteo Savini's Lega, which is, again, like an anti-immigrant, low-tax party, the sort of northern regionalist uh, thrust, got 9%, which was a big fall. And then Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia got 8%. So together, they got 44%. And the way the electoral system works, that gave them a, a big majority of seats. So I think we can say that this is the most right-wing government in Italy since, you know, if, if, as we presume, they'll be able to form a government because they have a majority of seats together and like they're still holding together, it will be the most right-wing government since World War II. But it's also one with some predecessors, including the fact that actually when Silvio Berlusconi, the uh, media tycoon, you know, when he formed his first government in 1994, it had basically the same parties just in kind of different ratios in the sense that he was more, he was relatively more dominant at the start and particularly kind of in the 2000s, Berlusconi's party was the dominant one, whereas now kind of within the right wing electorate, we've seen a shift towards the more uh, explicitly radical parties within it. In fact, the right wing electorate, 44% is pretty much what we'd have expected through the kind of pre-crisis period before the rise of the five-star movement, which was quite a strange kind of third block in Italian politics, apart from left and right. And its decline means that even the right wing, having holding onto its historic voting numbers and percentages, gives it a big majority. I suppose the other remarkable thing about the election result is the collapse or the very minor left tendency and also the extensive abstentionism in the election. How do you interpret those two phenomena? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, so I think in, in, in that sense as well, though, this election continues, kind of radicalizes kind of longer term trends rather than being kind of sudden bolt from the blue in the sense that, yeah, I mean, this election had 64% turnout, which, you know, in a lot of countries, I guess that's quite normal. I guess in Australia, you have uh, compulsory voting. Yeah, so 64% is, a, is the lowest turnout in the history of the republic. Uh, and it's down uh, 9% even on 2018, which was itself a historic low. And we think like in Italy in the 70s and 80s, uh, it was quite common to have a 90% plus turnout. They don't have compulsory vote voting in Italy. But, you know, at the time there was, you know, there used to be these very strong, well-rooted mass parties with millions of members. 
Uh, and so there's a sort of a general, uh, so, so since the early 1990s, when those older parties collapsed, there's a kind of general tendency for party affiliations to be less weak and for us to see very low turnout in things like regional and local elections. And now that the sort of national ones are catching up, uh, mainly this is a phenomenon of working class voters and voters in poorer regions, notably, uh, and most obviously southern Italy, very high uh, abstention. And it's kind of connected to the process of the, of what passes for the Italian left, the center left parties like the Democrats growing apart from their historic base. Indeed, to the extent that the higher your income, the more likely you are to vote for the Democrats. Uh, you know, in some other countries, we can see a certain tendency in this direction. If we think of, you know, something like Thomas Piketty talks about the Brahmin left, left wing electorate being, um, defined by things like, uh, education levels. But yeah, I mean, so, so basically what we see is, is this process brought to fuller completion where like what passes for the left is kind of liberal uh, and elitist and wealthy, but there's also a kind of massive working class uh, disengagement from the electoral process. And at the same time, so other more left wing forces are like unable to uh, fill in, fill in the gap, unable to, um, to like rebuild the kind of working class uh, left. You've referred to the, existence of different voting patterns according to Italy's regions. Can you speak a little bit more about where, if anywhere, the right is particularly strong or weak? The the right won everywhere except in the south. And the one of the big trends in this election actually was that historically within the right-wing bloc, the Lega has been the strongest of the right-wing parties in the north, and disproportionately so. In fact, until 2013, it uh, didn't even run candidates in central and southern Italy. And it's always been a party that's called for more autonomy for the wealthier uh, northern regions, notably Lombardy, which is the region around Milan and is the biggest region by both population and GDP, and also Veneto, the region around Venice, which is a kind of Lega heartland. So what was actually quite remarkable in this election was that Fratelli d'Italia was easily the bigger party and, in fact, was disproportionately strong in the north. The, in the South, the picture was quite different, although the turnout was lower. And so, you know, this had less impact on the overall result. Uh, one of the kind of surprising phenomena of the campaign, let's say like, you know, of the two months before the election is that the five star movement, which is a very eclectic party and has historically governed both with the, the Lega on the, on the far right and the Democrats on the soft left. And when I say historically, I mean, within the last four years, their campaign was very heavily focused on Defending unemployment benefits, which they introduced in 2019, fighting for a higher, for a introduction of a minimum wage, which doesn't yet exist. And also a certain rhetoric around like protecting the South, which has all, you know, long and always been sort of ignored by, by sort of visions for Italy's uh, sort of reconstruction, redevelopment. So five star, their vote collapsed from the 32% they achieved in 2018. But some polls in the early summer had them on like eight, nine, ten percent, and ultimately they got fifteen percent, and they won some of the southern regions. So overall, uh, what we see is that there was a certain vote in the south which was aligned to these kind of social policies I mentioned, and the fact that Five Star did a, a campaign very focused on that. Even though overall the most populous and wealthier uh, regions went firstly for the right, but in particular for Fratelli d'Italia. Uh, while Fratelli d'Italia has always been a junior partner in the right-wing coalition and also a party that's never like it controls a couple of regional governments in uh, in two quite small regions in, in central Italy, uh, Le Marche, which is on the eastern coast, and Abruzzo, which is right in the center of Italy, but has never really been a party that has had like strong ties to like um, basically the northern uh, sort of business interests in the northern industrial centers of Italy, where voting has also historically been sort of more class-based. And what we've seen in the build-up to this election is it's making a real effort to solidify some of those ties. So at the end of April, it held a conference in Milan, which is you know, the key business center of, uh, and certainly financial center of Italy. And it was like a conference designed to show off its credentials for business. And so it had people like Berlusconi's former finance minister, Giulio Tremonti speak. It had people like Guido Crosetto, who's one of the founders of Fratelli d'Italia, and himself is like head of part of the Employers Association Confindustria. Like he heads the association of like defense and security contractors. So 
you know, we get the impression of Fratelli d'Italia like seeking yet yeah, to sink roots in a, a kind of like business elite, which might previously have have you know not necessarily seen seen that kind of party as its natural uh, reference point. David, the election of a female prime minister is obviously an historic one, <laughs> and has afforded us the most wonderful opportunity for all of the most obnoxious people on the internet to come out and say, uh, you wokeisters seem to love women normally, but for some reason you've not been congratulating Georgia Maloney. Uh, do, do you too hate to see a girl boss winning? Yeah, I mean, during the uh, the campaign had, um, you know, as widely reported in Italian media, but hardly anyone seemed to pick it up in the English-speaking world uh, except me complaining about it, which was that uh, Hillary Clinton came to the Venice Film Festival and she did some interviews. And in one of them, she said, oh, she doesn't know much about Georgia Maloney, but it's always a step forward for a woman to be elected and she should be judged on what she does, which I thought was a very strange comment in the sense that, you know, I mean, <laughs> she should be judged on what she does, but we can also judge her on what she's done already, not what, not just what she's going to do if she's a prime minister. And yeah, I mean, I think in a way I kind of felt that Clinton's comment was like somehow uh, responded to the fact she you know, she doesn't know much about Maloney and she was like, uh, you know, she was put. A question was put to her, and she didn't know how to answer. But then again, actually, then I found out that the interview where she said that was the third one in which she'd been asked the same question, and the answer on the third occasion was more definite than the first time. So maybe she had indeed been schooled in how to answer. And of course, it's hard to imagine that Hillary Clinton would say the same thing about Marine Le Pen. So there's certainly some sort of like indulgent attitude towards Milani, probably because of her foreign policy positions are more uh, conformist with like the EU and NATO and so on. Another important thing to point out is that not only is Meloni's program like strongly anti-feminist, very focused on the idea of like women's role in society is as uh, mothers and indeed heterosexual uh, mothers in, in married couples, but also, I mean, actually the vote for uh, Meloni's party, Fratelli d'Italia, was quite heavily biased uh, in the sense that they got 28% among men and 24% among women. So even apart from a judgment on the feminism or not of, of Meloni and the signal her victory sends, it was obviously one which uh, Italian women uh, weren't particularly uh, attracted to. David, speaking of the policies of the new government, what do you think we can expect, especially in terms of Italy's relations with the rest of Europe? I think because of a lot of the discussion of whether it's relevant to bring up the fascist past of Meloni's party, its roots in historical neo-fascism, kind of pivots around this question of are they really ever so extreme or not? But I think that's a, a historical way of looking at it. And the party both has fascist roots, which are still visible in the present, but is also uh, conformist or quietist towards a lot of the institutional uh, order uh, and in particularly the international order. You know, the MSI, the neo-fascist party, when it was created in 1946, did so in a world that was only just coming into the Cold War, whereas now we've had, you know, more than 70 years of the existence of institutions like NATO, the very long-term development of the European project, during which time the the, the sort of ranking or, or place of Italy as a relatively junior partner in the, in the like, Western alliance has become very firmly established to the point of being almost unquestionable. You know, I, I just referred to my previous answer to the comparison with Marine Le Pen in France. And I think you know, there's the, Italy in its current economic position particularly is in no place to mount some sort of confrontation with the EU. I think particularly over like the Euro or Eurozone, and it's several years since uh, Milan kind of stopped talking about the idea of an, of ending the uh, the euro by and indeed during the campaign as well i mean matteo salvini of the lega suggested that the the crisis the current gas price crisis might force uh, italy to uh, like go over its um, deficit and, like spending spending more on investment and sort of crisis resolution than uh, the eu rules allow and meloni like totally slapped down that idea uh, so I, I think like at the level of like Italy's international positioning and relation to the, to the Eurozone, she'll very much seek to emphasize the like continuity and stability. However, at the same time, I also think that she'll seek to have some kind of conflicts, particularly over sort of identity related questions and particularly over the uh, question of immigration. She's repeatedly floated the idea of a naval blockade 
to stop migrant rescue boats, which is like illegal. You know, the, the way she describes it and the language would be something that would be like illegal in like maritime law, never mind EU law. So I think like it's, it's likely there'll be some sort of conflict over the like refugee numbers. The idea that Europe should more fairly share out uh, arriving migrants and so on. And I think like in a way, the more mediocre her government in terms of its like economic policy and so on, the more likely it is to, to seek these kind of conflicts, both with the kind of domestic left and NGOs but maybe also with kind of like the EU, uh, but I think in a way that wouldn't seriously imperil uh, Italy's sort of place in the EU. I mean, I think an interesting point of comparison is a country like Poland, which has a, a far-right government, Law and Justice Party, and which is very close to Maloney's party. They're in the same like, European group of parties. And it has a record of conflict with the European Union over the independence of the judiciary. It's also you know, a party that, that is very like um, anti-feminist and uh, anti-immigrant. But actually, we've seen that because of its stance like on the side of Ukraine and against Russia, which has been you know, totally implacable and firm, it's somehow sort of been re-legitimized as part of the the sort of forces which the main sort of center center right blocks in the EU can do business with. And I think with Melania as well, uh, the fact that she's so committed to to the Ukrainian side means that actually, you know, when when sort of European well, let's really say German uh, centre-right parties talk about the next Italian government. They're more worried about Salvini's Lega than Milani's party in this sense, because you know the Lega has raised more doubts over like sanctions and, and so on. So I think in, in foreign policy in that sense, and Italy's international relations, Milani is, is in fact quite, uh, let's say, a conformist. David, can you speak to the impact that COVID-19 and uh, the, the Green Pass restrictions in uh, Italy had upon this election result? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little strange in the sense that I think in Italy, the initial phase of the pandemic was like a moment in which we saw a certain strength of like the solidarity in Italian society, a certain pride in the uh, national health system that exists in Italy. We, we might think like during the US primaries, uh, the Democrat primaries in the US, in the early moments of the pandemic, when Italy was like the worst affected country, Joe Biden made a comment which was like, well, you know, Italy has single payer healthcare and look how screwed they are kind of thing. And I think there was a sort of backlash, not necessarily against that quote specifically, but against the kind of impression that, you know, lots of foreign media were talking Italy down. And then there was a sort of strong, there was in fact a strong response and like from like the healthcare system and so on. But then I think over time that waned. And then in the 2021, the the kind of um, idea of the kind of opposition to the lockdown measures grew. Part of that was driven by like you know Novax groups and conspiracy theorists, but there were also a lot of mobilizations by people who, for instance, well, I mean, if there were re- mobilizations by by groups like restaurant owners who you know were basically losing business, uh, and then their employees. We could speculate that in such cases, a high proportion of the staff would have been employed. Uh, sort of uh, cash in hand, so wouldn't have been eligible for for sort of state uh, handouts. And then at the same time, there were also people who were meant to receive payments and didn't get them. So you know, when uh, in February 2021, Mario Draghi, the former chief of the European Central Bank, was kind of maneuvered into a position to lead a cross-party government to spend the sort of post-pandemic uh, recovery funds from the European Union. So that was a kind of so-called national unity government, but which uh, included five-star Democrats, Forza Italia and the Lega, uh, but in which Fratelli d'Italia didn't participate. And it was the, you know, Meloni's party was basically the main or almost only major opposition. And then, so that gave it, you know, a big opportunity to mobilize all kinds of frustrations against the government, including from the other right-wing parties who were included in, in Draghi's government. And I think Milani played her hand, you know, purely at the level of like political tactics, played her hand quite well in the sense that she kind of emphasized she was going to be a constructive opposition and that she was, you know, not seeking to cause instability. But then at the same time, kind of did continually uh, attack the lockdown measures, uh, the, the so-called green pass, which was, you know, like you could only enter public spaces if you had, you know, proof of vaccination, basically. She kind of criticized those in a way which somehow gave voice to frustration and even certain kind of like a sort of certain conspiracy theorist energy. 
but without specifically voicing the ideas raised by the most like unhinged kind of Novax groups. So I'll give an example, uh, which is in the so 25th of April is the day in which Italians, or let's say many Italians, uh, celebrate the anniversary of the resistance against fascism. It's a public holiday. And on and Milani like refuses to celebrate this day. And then on the 25th of April of 2021, she tweeted, you know, I don't have it word for word, but basically she tweeted like, the real liberation has to be in the present, not in the past. And that means a liberation from these like endless lockdowns. So it was kind of like she like somehow mobilized like anger and frustration against the the fact the lockdowns existed, but without herself being forced to like propose a real or serious uh, alternative. So I think in that sense, you know, the, the lockdown was sort of part of the way in which she drew votes, uh, particularly from the other right-wing parties. And actually, if we look, I mean, her, her polling rise started uh, before uh, the Liga joined Draghi's government, but certainly continued and accelerated after. And if we look at the, uh, if we look at who voted Fratelli d'Italia in this election, most of them are direct switches from the Lega, the people who voted for the Lega in the twenty nine, uh, sorry, in the twenty eighteen general election. So I think that the 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 pandemic had, although it it did in ways show the strength of uh, the national health system, and perhaps uh, we could also say that in Lombardy, in particularly the uh, the Lega, the regional government it leads, oversaw the crisis quite uh, poorly. I think the the it was more like the, the situation with the Draghi government specifically allowed Fratelli d'Italia to kind of claim the mantle of opposition. And that was important in the way it marketed itself to, to right-wing voters. David, I saw a, a small item about Maloney recently uh, that her uh, teenage Lord of the Rings dragon fanfic had been discovered online. And I thought that was a, an interesting curiosity. And then I've discovered that Maloney is like obsessed with Lord of the Rings and it mm-hmm. features heavily in the mythology of this party. Could you Talk a little bit about how Lord of the Rings, uh, what it means to these people. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll say first, I've actually never read any of the Lord of the Rings books. I saw some of the films when they came out, uh, not particularly uh, willingly or enthusiastically. But yes, but recently I've had to start uh, reading about this and, and how people are. In, and you, know, what are the like? His, you know, how has Tolkien's? You know, how have his works been interpreted in terms of like how much of his politics are in it? And, you know, basically, of course, like Tolkien has some sort of like utopian idea of like the pre-modern world. And also it's like a world of like tribes and peoples and, you know, the defense of home and this kind of stuff. But, you know, he was like a quite normal conservative in a way, rather than uh, you know, certainly not like a, a fascist. But like, you know, Milani. So, so yeah, I mean, of course, there's a kind of the civilizational focus sort of lends itself to the uh, neo-fascist appropriation of him, but it's not like it's all there in the original. So, like, I mean, since even the the seventies, uh, Tolkien has been a big reference point for the the youth of the old MSI, the old neo-fascist party. And uh, in seventy seven, seventy eight, and nineteen eighty, they had these uh, festivals called Camp Hobbit. Broadly, the MSI was quite like was in every way kind of like culturally conservative and backward looking quite hostile, certainly in the 50s and 60s, to like Hollywood pop music and so on. But, and, you know, it was kind of also like kind of not able to exploit the kind of 68 uh, student protests and so on to its own uh, advantage. And it was like basically uh, totally excluded uh, by the, by the sort of dominant anti-fascist culture of the, of the student movements of that period. But then in the, in the 70s, it sort of starts to create its own kind of youth life to pop culture references and Tolkien is a big part of that. Meloni explicitly says like Tolkien's work isn't a fantasy, it's a, a profound metaphor on man and his world. And if we look at her writing where she does cite uh, Tolkien, it's always in this register of the people who defends its own, the people which is under threat. There's a bit in her memoir, Yosona uh, Georgia, where she quotes um uh, Prince Faramir from, um, I think it's from the Two Towers. You see, I've never read it, but I'm talking about these books as if <laughs> they're, they're familiar to me. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so she quotes Prince Faramir, I think the quotes from the Two Towers, where, uh, he's talking about Numenor. So it's like this, this, uh, once great empire that's become godless and is in decline. And then the quote is something like, I don't love the, the blade or the arrow 
uh, for their own sake, you know, I don't like war and violence for its own sake, but rather the people they defend. And I think also it fits into a certain, this kind of, this kind of like reframing of a kind of civilizational politics in terms of these like references to Tolkien. We could also say actually in her book, she also quotes various other kind of lowbrow reference points like you know, Maroon 5, which is actually quoted in a, <laughs> it's the, the quote is something like, I, I can't remember the lyric. It's something like, I'll, I'll hold these torches for you. I'll never let you drop. And it's like a reference to like the, um, the flame logo of the MSI, which Fratelli d'Italia uh, refuses to drop. Um, so I think these, oh, these, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, so I, I think interesting in that case particularly is that I think there's a certain, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, there's certainly some like self-aware and ironic use of the reference there with the Tolkien one. I'm not so sure. I mean, I, th- I think like, it allows them to sort of talk in a, a less, um, obviously in a, in a way it's like, oh yeah, well, they're using a, a sort of pop culture reference point because it's less uh, explicitly like threatening than to talk in terms of, you know, historical fascism and, and its civilization and politics. But then I put two major caveats on that. One of which is that it does, uh, you know, Melanie does otherwise talk <laughs> about, um, you know, civilizational threat in very harsh terms, like, you know, George Soros, who plans the ethnic substitution of the Italian people, the extinction of Italians, this kind of language. And then also, I think, secondly, I think there's also actually, there is a difference from uh, historical fascism, which is that, of course, the whole idea of, of, you know, Mussolinian fascism is based on this idea of, you know, like, is it an expansive and imperial nationalism of like, you know, recreating the Roman Empire and like literally like invading the surrounding countries? Whereas the, the sort of idea of civilizational defense proposed by Milani is much more uh, focused on kind of victimhood, the sense of like encroaching doom, the claim that Italians were in World War II the victim of ethnic cleansing by Yugoslav partisans, and that this is happening again now because our identity is being destroyed. We're not allowed to love our country anymore. So, so it, it's, I think there's a different, well, I mean, sorry, I mean, the, there is a difference in the sense that it's, it's about this, uh, it's, it's very, um, focused on the idea of the death of the civilization, which isn't necessarily, you know, I, I've read some, uh, interesting stuff on the comparison between kind of Spengler and uh, Oswald Spengler and Tolkien in the sense that, you know, in, in a sense, like, uh, there's a difference in the sense that Spengler is talking about like a, a sort of natural process of the death, of a, uh, you know, the, the twilight of an old civilization rather than in terms of like you know, battles. Whereas the sort of Tolkien as mobilized by Milani kind of does like literally speak the language of warfare, but really she's obviously, you know, talking, you know, the party is broadly like constitutional in its means of doing politics and the kind of battle it fights is like, you know, could include like sending the Italian Navy against migrant rescue boats, but doesn't literally mean a, a kind of cult of political violence. Uh, just a quick aside directly to the listener. I could play a Maroon 5 song at the end of this episode, but I'm not going to. But just something to keep in mind when we ask for money next time. David, what's the position of the brothers in terms of the broader cultural politics of Italy? How strong is the movement which voted it into office? How, how strong in what sense? In terms of its broader cultural appeal, is it a popular movement? Beyond the election results, I guess I'm asking how popular are the brothers and the doctrines that it advances among Italians generally? Mm-hmm. Well, it's quite contradictory in the sense that Fratelli d'Italia is a, a very small party in terms of its um, you know, number of ca- uh, members, Caders in terms of its local uh, representation, you know, it's like basically won the national general election without really uh, building much of a base for itself in, in regional government in terms of winning big uh, cities. If we think that the biggest city it ever had a mayor of uh, Verona, it lost control of in the uh, local elections earlier this year. And Verona isn't one of the biggest cities in Italy. And, you know, Fratelli d'Italia got 2% in the 2013 election and 4% in 2018. Some of its predecessors in the 90s got like 10, 15%. So it's not, enti- it's, you know, it's not just like a, a, a sect or microculture that has suddenly grown, but certainly like, you know, its electoral appeal has like very considerably risen in just the last few years, uh, mainly coming from the Lega. 
but I think the thing is, is that if we look at the, you know, if we look at the last 30 years of Italian history, then a lot of the kind of ideas and framing of the world presented by Fratelli d'Italia has become very normal across the right wing space. Uh, there's a certain kind of tendency to imagine that like, oh, like, because, you know, because Milani's party is rooted in historical fascism, that therefore, like, Berlusconi's Forza Italia, uh, which was historically the main uh, right-wing party in the last 30 years, is therefore this kind of moderating influence, or is sort of politically more sort of sober. But in reality, I mean, firstly, it was Berlusconi who first brought the uh, the post-fascists into government. I mean, in 2019, he gave a speech where he said, you know, the the old parties, the anti-fascist republic, they always excluded uh, the Lega and the fascists from government, whereas we constitutionalized them, legitimized them. And he actually called them fascists uh, when he said this. So, but even apart from like bringing them in as, as allies, I mean, the era of where, of Berlusconi's first entry into politics in 94 was also like a moment of uh, a very strong his, um, wave of kind of like historical revisionism. Uh, where these ideas, like the one I mentioned earlier, that, that the idea that like Italians were victims of ethnic cleansing by Yugoslav partisans, things like highlighting the crimes of, of communists during the World War II resistance, the idea that basically the two sides were equal and you know were just opposed to totalitarianisms, so therefore like basically Italian fascism has nothing particularly to apologize for, or maybe like should apologize for the Holocaust, but nothing else, became like very mainstream uh, and indeed hegemonic and there's these uh, figures like say bruno vespa who's like one of the most visible and popular uh, talk show ho- hosts in italy put, uh, you know issued like a very long series of like historical books which sold hundreds of thousands of copies each in which he basically promotes this vision of history like claiming like oh well until 1991 you couldn't say anything because the communists wrote all the history books but now we can be honest so this this kind of like Right wing sort of wave uh, is partly rooted in this kind of historical revisionism, but also I mean there's a certain you know the the, the right has become more focused around nationalism and national identity than was true of like the old Christian Democratic Party in, in post war decades. This was also something uh, in a way also promoted by by the centre left and by the, some of the like technocratic figures like um, for example. Um, President uh, Ciampi, uh, by the turn of the millennium, who was the like, former central banker, and then, therefore within Italian politics, therefore you know, central banker equals left wing. So, so he, you know, he introduced this, like, also reintroduced this, like, Republic Day and this kind of like celebration of Italian nationhood in the in the language of kind of like flags and military marches, rather than like a national history centered on like the resistance, the anti-fascist resistance. So. It, Lots of the kind of like symbolism of the Italian state and the kind of historical memory culture has shifted a lot to the right. At the same time, this anti-immigrant politics has become very strong in the, the centre-left government in 98 kind of introduced the first laws sort of regulating, uh, the, the, the forms of like migration or more particularly of, of, of deportation of migrants. And then that was hardened a lot in 2002 by a law. Uh, written by the Lega together with the post-fascist party of the time, with Alianza Nazionale. And this has become, you know, we saw it in the 2010s as well with Matteo Salvini and the Lega, you know, when he was the biggest, or the, the main leader of the right, this like very obsessive anti-migrant politics became one of the big markers of the, of the, of the right. So I think like, you know, in, and in many ways, Milani is just kind of taking up the slack from, from him in that sense. Some, the contradiction though is that if we look at like surveys of Italians' social attitudes, they are both much more liberal than you might think, including with regard to some of the policies around things like abortion or same-sex marriages, where Fratelli d'Italia's position is much more, uh, host- is much more hostile than the general population or even than the right-wing electorate. And also in the sense that, you know, when Italians are asked like, what's the most important issue to you? They are uh, ranking very high. Uh, so, I mean, the issues they say matter most to them are things like energy bills and uh, wages and so on, but that, that finds very little direct expression on the on the electoral terrain, which is like very heavily centered on these kind of identitarian uh, issues. I think part of the reason for that is because Italy has had such a long period, like where it's been kind of stuck 
uh, like without economic growth, without any economic recovery really happening, and in which it's like very high debt and and you know through its bind to the euro also means that it's like difficult for any government to mount a big change around. The fact that those big political choices can't be made means that uh, the electoral panorama tends to both be impoverished and with less people voting, but also uh, in the sense that it tends to be more focused on these kind of identitarian issues. In terms of the brothers' position within the coalition, what do you think are the potential points of conflict or tension between the partners? One of the big issues that's been talked up a lot during the campaign was the idea that basically, whereas Milani has sought to advertise her like you know strong support for Ukraine, strong stance against Russia, um, you know she had some earlier comments which are very indulgent of of Putin, particularly in the sense that he's like a you know, defender of the Christian nation and so on. But yeah, I mean, broadly, her part, her and well, actually, particularly Maloney herself, rather less her party, are like you know, make a big deal of advertising this this support for Ukraine and so on. Whereas both Berlusconi and Salvini uh, seem less fixed in that position, and particularly in the case of Salvini, particularly because the Lega. You know, was only recently the, the 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 bigger of the parties and has declined a lot, maybe even jeopardizing his leadership. I think it makes sense for Salvini to sort of agitate around the issue, in particular in the sense that right wing voters are on whether to continue with the uh, sanctions against Russia, particularly insofar as they're seen as you know responsible for the uh, energy price rise. And Salvini has has kind of uh, made statements where he's kind of indicated that. You know, maybe the sanctions shouldn't go on forever. You know, this is hurting us more than them. Uh, this kind of thing. So I think like that is you know that that's a certain a cause of conflict. Another cause of conflict with the Lega is that, which also relates to the kind of internal dynamics of the Lega, is that Salvini was at his height of his support when he was Interior Minister in 2018-19, when the the Lega had a coalition with Five Star. Uh, being Interior Minister gave him like a platform by which he could like basically wage war on. So migrant uh, NGOs and indeed migrants, you know, like promising to like shut the ports to um, not allow in any migrants. Uh, there was a, an incident for which he faces a prosecution where they basically illegally imprisoned migrants on a boat by like forcing them to, to stay uh, overnight for um, several nights, in fact, on, 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 a, on a rescue boat. So, you know, Salvini has repeatedly publicly signaled that he wants to be interior minister again and that you know basically taking up this role will allow him to like put himself in the center of the sort of media narrative and rebuild his uh, support and leadership other f- firstly though other figures in the lega don't seem so interested in that particularly the leaders of of the regions i mentioned who basically you know their concern is basically in the next government that they should have as much control as possible over the levers of economic policy, uh, also to the benefit of their own preferred regions. And also, like in both Lombardy and Veneto, the regions want uh, more uh, autonomy to keep more of their own taxes, which is a problem if we think like these are some of the, you know, these are among the richest regions in Italy. Uh, so therefore, you know, them keeping more of their tax means less money for everywhere else. But yeah, because they're, they're basically, I think, more focused on economic concern in terms of their relation to the national government and also because they um, are probably doubting whether Salvini can continue as leader in the sense that, you know, the party lost the large majority of its vote, at least compared to, you know, say two or three years ago. So, yeah, so I think Milani also has, you know, it's been suggested that she'll put Salvini in a, in a much more junior role in the government, like agriculture minister or, or something. So uh, I think that's the most likely um, sort of, area of, of of conflict uh one more thing which differentiates the parties although i think it won't necessarily provoke like crises is that all of the parties are kind of low tax parties uh, and during the election campaign salvini um promised a 15 percent flat tax rate rather than progressive taxation which exists now so it would be basically a huge upwards distribution of income and would also drastically reduce the income of the Italian state. Berlusconi has his own one, uh, his own such proposal, but the rate is much higher at uh, 23%, although it's still lower than currently. And Fratelli d'Italia took a bit of a hedging middle position. 
So I think the thing is, is that in its kind of, um, let's say in, in its kind of instincts and political DNA, Fratelli d'Italia is also and has increasingly become a sort of free marketeer, low tax party, one which indeed promises to get rid of unemployment benefits, but, but boost employment by tax exemptions for big, for employers. But I think the nature of the crisis it faces and the likelihood of recession coming imminently will in effect force it to become a lot more interventionist in terms of supporting incomes, even in terms of keeping businesses afloat than it would, than it would sort of, than would, would appear to be the case from its kind of ideological statements and self definition. Berlusconi and Forza Italia had some other ideas about uh, the redistribution of wealth at times, and MS5 ran on sort of an anti-corruption platform at one point. <laughs> what, what does the election of this government mean for the fight against corruption in Italy? Oh, <laughs> well, one of, the, uh, one of the things that's really interesting is that you know, if we think of the uh, people who are in the leadership of Fratelli d'Italia now, it includes a lot of people who became politically active in the early 1990s. So, you know, of course, it's a party like founded by, uh, founded by, um, you know, people who were like veterans of the Nazi collaboration and, you know, for many decades remained a party dominated by people who'd fought in World War II. But then, of course, you know, it changed already with the kind of generation who grew up in the, in the years of lead of the 1970s, uh, and, and the 80s and, and then, uh, with, you know, a time of political violence and its decline. And then a lot of the leaders now sort of grew up politically in the, in the 90s. And one thing they make a big deal of is like there was this um, anti-mafia uh, magistrate, Paolo Borsellino, who was, who was murdered. So he was central to the Maxi Processo, like the biggest anti-mafia trial in Italy, in, the, in, sorry, in Sicily in the uh, end of the 80s. Then he was murdered by the mafia in 1982. Uh, he was someone who historically had been seen as close to the MSI and which, uh, and it very much, um, sort of claimed him as its own after his death, uh, despite the protests of his brother. So you have a lot of these, uh, people who grew up in the early, politically grew up in the early nineties, like Milani, like uh, Carlo Fidanza, who's like the leader of the, uh, Fratelli d'Italia in the European Parliament, or, uh, Francesco Loro Brugida, who is, um, Milani's brother-in-law. Um, they, they make, they all say like, oh yeah, I'm not a fascist. That's not what drew me into politics. I was in- inspired by the example of Paolo Borsellino, this like anti-mafia, uh, judge. And Milani explicitly says this in her book. Uh, but then the problem is, is that Fratelli d'Italia has a vastly higher rate of, uh, of its representatives being, um, investigated or, or, or sentenced for like ties to organized crime than is true of any other party. Berlusconi's governments, you know, included, you know, I mean, he, he, you know, I mean, his ties to mafiosi by, um, through a delutri, uh, are, are well known. So, and, you know, during his government, the um, members of Fratelli d'Italia and the Lega, including Meloni herself, kind of voted to shield various of his associates from, uh, prosecution, including believing, uh, co- you know, quite unlikely uh, stories and defending them in public. So, I mean, in that sense, it's true that the Berlusconi governments brought into government some uh, like power networks built around Berlusconi himself, which were full of both both corruption and embezzlement and ties to organized crime. We saw the same thing when uh, there was a post-fascist mayor of Rome at the end of two, the 2000s, Gianni Alemanno. But then, you know, the thing is, I think it's generally true that this, you know, it's generally true that the right has a worse record on this, particularly the last 30 years, but also very much isn't exclusive to them. Um, and, you know, it's part of a, it's part of a, a, a broader a phenomenon, which is the links between basically, you know, um, basically the contracting of public services to private firms, which is also why almost all sort of big scale development projects in Italy uh, often immediately come under the uh, sort of alleg- come under the sort of rubric of like potential sources of, of corruption. So then that becomes also a sort of basis for a certain kind of anti-statist and anti-developmentalist uh, uh, politics. But I think, um, it, yeah, it's hard to say how specifically it, w- it would play out because of course everyone claims to be uh, against corruption, but it's a, a sort of, um, it, it's like an easy thing to claim to oppose. But I think the, the record of, um, Fratelli d'Italia uh, is not uh, is not good. David, what's been the response of the left in Italy to uh, the election? I think that the thing is is that 
the electoral law, which grants uh, a majority to the, the largest coalition, uh, or at least that's its uh, effect, meant that the fact that there was a right-wing coalition uniting the three parties, uh, plus one small one, meant that it was like basically guaranteed well in advance that the right-wing coalition would win and that Milani, uh, her party, Fratelli d'Italia, would be certainly the biggest party in that coalition. Because the various opposition forces were divided, notably the, the Democrats, who are a kind of liberal Europeanist party, and then Five Star, because they were divided, um, there was no chance that they would form a, a, a block that would be able to challenge the right. I think even United, they'd have been quite far away, uh, realistically. So while the Democrats ran their campaign kind of quite heavily on the idea of Meloni is like a mix of dangerous and incompetent, uh, integrating even a certain amount of anti-fascist uh, rhetoric. Uh, the fact that they didn't make the coalition that had any chance of stopping her meant that that wasn't a mobilizing force. And also, I mean, particularly, of course, given their, their very poor uh, economic record in t- delivering for their sort of historic uh, base. So, I mean, I think the thing is, is that Meloni's victory was like totally expected by everyone. And then over the campaign, we saw the a quite typical trend of Italian and uh, international media, which was a, a kind of softening of the criticism and framing of her painted in the light of, oh, she's become more moderate. But, but, but the effect is also from the other side, right? It's like, as, as she becomes more like the norm and indeed the assumed winner, then the framing is adjusted to make her look more normal. So yeah, I mean, I think like um, the the views of different parts of the left are very different among themselves. In the sense that I think you know a lot of um, I'd say a lot of people who are you know sort of um, progressive minded people in Italian society who are uh, kind of switched on to you know who, who think about and talk about civil rights issues and migration and so on are obviously uh, horrified and. But at the same time, I think there's a certain, um, you see, I, I'd say like the comparison I could also make is I think compared to 2018 and when, and the sort of particularly the kind of height of Salvini's period as interior minister, where there really was this kind of war on migrants and uh, NGOs and so on. I think then it was probably even more aggressively, you know, his positions were like even more belligerent and and certainly tonally uh, extreme so although this is like i guess i mean I, I guess it's like um you know you said in the first question it's like this you know people saying oh this is the first right-wing government since 1945 or whatever i mean the, exactly the thing is is that you know we actually have had a lot of this before and it's like not a sudden shock but rather a trend that's been going on for, for 30 years we're sort of increasingly accustomed to the idea firstly that the right is very strong and the right is able to win and, you know, put its differences aside to win the elections. Uh, and also that the right is basically no longer bound by any sort of like anti-fascist, uh, limits and also not bound by any kind of, you know, like speech codes or, you know, institutional responsibility or, or anything like that. Uh, so it's like both a, a very strong and, uh, and certainly, um, radical, uh, opponent, but also one which we've all grown sort of used to o- over time. So, yeah, so I think, you know, on the left, um, yeah, I mean, it depends how far left you want to talk about. I mean, because, you know, the, 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 the kind of explicitly like anti-capitalist left, um, again, failed to enter parliament and wasn't really very close to, to doing so. Uh, but again, that's also become quite normal. I mean, if we think like, you know, basically 2008, Refundazione Comunista, which was like the, you know, the, the biggest poll of the anti-capitalist left after the demise of the Communist Party, uh, or rather the self-dissolution of the Communist Party. Um, you know, that lost it all its seats in the 2008 election. Since then, we haven't had anything back again. I mean, there are in some of the kind of smaller, so, um, sort of center to, sorry, center left to left parties allied with the Democrats. For example, there's a party which is, it's a bit like, it's a bit like a green, so green left party, which elected like a couple of uh, people who are like kind of quite well known, uh, activists. So, you know, this, there'll be like some, you know, one of whom Abu Bakr Sumoro is like a, a, a guy born in the Ivory Coast who was in a, a small, a Castroite, like pro Cuban group 
called Rete de Comunisti, who was a uh, farm workers organizer in southern Italy, uh, so organizing mainly like sub-Saharan African uh, immigrant uh, workers in, in the fields in southern central Italy. And you know, he, over time, has become more like a media personality, and he was elected, uh, I think, to the Senate. So you know, there's some expressions of like the left and of activists become you know gaining prominence, coming into parliament, and so on. But then, just overall, we see the the, the trend is for the for the left wing to become a, a smaller and more more embattled um, sort of community of opinion, which doesn't have uh, strong uh, sort of popular roots anymore. Well, David, we'll have to leave it there on that cheery note. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, if people want to find you, you're on Twitter at Brodely. People can find your writing on Jacobin. And uh, the book Mussolini's Grandchildren is out next year through Pluto. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll see you next week. See you then. middle of the earth in the land of Shire lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe fuzzy woolly toes. He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Hobbits are peace-loving folks, you know. They're never in a hurry and they take things slow. They don't like to travel away from home. They just like to eat and be left alone. But one day Bilbo was asked to go on a big adventure to the caves below to help some dwarves get back their gold that was stolen by a dragon in the days of old Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins, only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Well, he fought with the goblins. He battled a troll. He riddled with Gollum. A magic ring he stole. He was chased by wolves, lost in the forest, escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. That brave little hobbit whom we all admire Just sitting on a treasure of silver and gold Puffing on his pipe in his hobbit Ho, ho, Bilbo Bilbo Baggins He's only three feet tall